Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Irish-Australian author Esther Campion. Esther is the author of three novels, Leaving Ocean Road, House of Second Chances, and most recently, A Week to Remember. Released by Hachette a little over a month ago now, A Week to Remember is a heartwarming story that has the warmth and satisfaction of a Mae Finty or Monica McInerney novel. Set between Ireland and Tasmania, it's a hopeful story about family, love, and second chances that will delight readers and have them yearning to travel once more. Welcome to the podcast, Esther. Thank you so much, Claudine. I'm delighted to be talking to you this morning. And I'm delighted to be talking to you, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but it's the first of your novels I've had the chance to read, but I loved this book on so many levels. I'm a huge fan of Maeve Finch's work and also of Monica McInerney's. How does it make you feel to have your work compared to other authors in this way? It's absolutely terrified, if I were quite honest, um, Claudine. I was completely humbled. I mean, these names, I mean, I wouldn't have heard of Monica McInerney until I came to Australia, um, but quickly realised how massive she is, you know, and loved, um, I've read a few of her books now, but the one I, the standout was The House of Memories, um, loved that book, but Maeve Binchy would have been a household name in Ireland, um, you know, from the the time Light Pen a Candle was um, released in 1982, and I would have seen my mother reading Maeve Binchy books, I didn't come to her myself until uh, I was in my 30s and I've but I've read her since just absolutely love Maeve Binchy's books so like she's a bit of a god like to me so <laughs> to uh, a very saddened she when, when I heard she died there a few years ago now but I think I watched all her YouTube videos as my way of you know marking her passing um but definitely I mean, what a legacy, you know, I'm still reading her wonderful works and to be compared in any way at all, to be put in the same sentences as Maeve and, you know, people like Monica McInerney is it's a huge honour. And I, I'm, I'm both terrified, but also very delighted. It's well-deserved praise for your book. So I wanted to ask you, are you happy with the way the book's been received so far? Oh, I'm thrilled all together. Thrilled all together. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not not much for the kind of you know figures and all that kind of side of it I just love the I suppose we all like when people say nice things about us <laughs> but it is I suppose it's like writing as you know well yourself it's a bit of a slog like you know it's work it's a bit like study you've got to do it to, to have anything to show for yourself and um it's you're quite isolated when you're doing it but I then of course you that that's the sort of beginnings of it um then you get if you're lucky you get to the stage where you work with the team on putting it together as something that will appear in bookshops and on people's bookshelves and maybe their nightstands they're reading it overnight so it's a lovely process I love the process of it all and of course uh if it's you know when it's well received and and, and you get the good reviews um I, I take it as a bit of a pat on the back not just for myself but for 
for the, the, the fabulous talent in the publishing house, then, you know, and people, you know, reading it voluntarily for <laughs> reviews, you know, honest reviews, people who do blogs and um, people like yourself, you know, um, welcoming me uh, and giving me a chance to have a chat about it. It's, it's, all, it's all good. Oh, fantastic. So well said. So Esther, for those who haven't had the chance to read this beautiful book yet, can you tell me more about the story? I can, and I'm absolutely delighted that you haven't read my previous novels and, and, and you love this one because um, I think some people are worried that my, my books are a bit linked, and they are a bit linked, they're loosely connected, and you wouldn't have to read one you know, to enjoy another. Um, but if you did want to read the three of them, that's great as well. But A Week to Remember is uh, mostly set in uh, West Cork in Ireland, and there's a guest house called Lizzie O's, and it is a newly renovated uh, farmhouse. And it's about to take in its first guests uh, for a week in the Irish winter that none of them will forget, really. I have a collection of characters who are guests in the house for various reasons. I've got Mick and Ashling Fitzgerald. They're Irish, but they live in Tasmania. They're Irish Australians. And they go there to celebrate a wedding anniversary. But Ashling has got some um, a secret that she is carrying around that will threaten the, the whole lovely holiday idea. Her mother-in-law, Lillian Fitzgerald, Lily Fitz, she goes to Tassie to both house sit and sort of mind the grandchildren and she has a lovely adventure of her own in Tasmania and I really enjoyed setting part of the novel right where I live where I walk my dog beaches I walk my dog along of a day when I have a day off then I have a dentist from Cork the city I'm from and his practice manager is trying to I suppose get rid of him for a week <laughs> he escapes down to uh, West Cork where he actually has roots that he has forgotten a little bit. One of my very important characters is Katie Daly. She has spent about 35 years away from the place. She's originally from there and uh, she comes back after this long absence when her sister begs her to um, look after their aging mother while she goes off to Spain for, for a week. And for reasons which I won't give away, she doesn't stay with her mother but she opts to stay in this guest house and then the other character I'll mention is Mia Montgomery who is in her early 30s she goes to the guest house she's recently arrived um, in Ireland to live through her husband's work and she takes herself off to this guest house for a week without telling him. So I hope that gives a bit of a taste. It's certainly a rich story filled with so many different characters and their interesting backstories. So I wanted to ask you, Esther, what inspired you to write this book? I think it is a little bit like what happened with when I finished my first book. A couple of the characters, I don't know whether I wouldn't let them go or whether they wouldn't let me go. I'm not sure, sure the brain chemistry works around that. But uh, I definitely had a a longing to have a couple of the minor characters in my first book, Leaving Ocean Road, 
to bring them out and, and, and put them centre stage, as it were, in the House of Second Chances. And I ended up with um, Colette Barry and Aidan O'Shea, interior designer and a builder, putting them together in this house I write about in West Cork and having them do the renovation of that property as a kind of a backdrop to the story. And when that renovation was then finished, I was left with, well, and that book was finished, my thoughts were around, well, what's going to happen to that house now? And I had the idea for my main character in my first book to actually return to Ireland and run the house as a guest house. Um, and then I was very keen to write about the house in its working form as a guest house. And then I populated it with the characters of this book, A Week to Remember. That brings us to Lizzie O's, the guest house in West Cork that our characters spend the week in. So was this inspired by a real place? I think the short answer that, to that is probably no. There's no real, um, there's no real house, but there are so many beautiful properties in Ireland. I love West Cork. I have a long held in Ireland. The word for uh, love is grow. And we would just say we have a long held grow for the place. And since my late teens, I was introduced to the area by a friend who um, invited me down to stay with her family in a massive, call it a mobile home, but it's like a, a kind of a static caravan that doesn't go anywhere. But anyway, I stayed in that. Every time I go home, I, I drag the family down um, to 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 this the particular place is called Crookhaven and I, I bring them down there and I had lovely holidays myself in a place called Crosshaven which I throw into this book as well a week to remember it gets a mention um so I've kind of got a history I suppose of these lovely places and I've always admired these lovely properties you know you know those places with the, the coloured ivy growing up the walls and things like that um they're all a bit kind of charming and idyllic so I suppose yeah that was the easy easy truth to sort of imagine one of those properties. Yeah, and I have to say that the scenes in your book were so alive with the glorious tranquility of these seaside settings, not only in, in Ireland and in West Cork, but, but in Tasmania as well. So was it important to you to recreate these settings? Is it a, a homage to the places that you've lived in and spent time in? Uh, yes, Claudine. Um, I feel like a bit of a fraud writing about places that I kind of don't know very well or, um, you know, some people create fantastic story worlds around purely imagined places, but I have a strong connection. I've worked out, you know, in recent years through the writing, a very strong connection to place. And it takes, like I've moved through, you know, with my husband's work, we lived in different countries, we lived in different Australian states and I've always, that's always been hugely, I suppose, a kind of a heavy thing for me to deal with. I always find new places. Well, I suppose maybe the nature of the places I've moved to. I moved, for example, from Norway to South Australia one, one, one January weekend, like when you go from minus nine to 36 degrees. The contrast is quite stark and it, it takes probably years for a landscape to get under my skin to the point where I feel comfortable enough um to and but also um worthy really of writing about these places I just feel I'd like to write about these places with an authentic voice and because these places mean so much to me I feel that that maybe yes this is why the you know the the response has 
about landscape has been quite strong. It's just so much of this book is about overcoming events in the past that have or can shape the future or a, a person's future, I should say, and also about the power of forgiveness. Is this something that you consciously wanted to explore? Well, I'd be very honest with you, with you Claudine. There's not much conscious going into any of this. <laughs> in, in the beginning stages, anyway, I tell you the, the, the drafting, because I am one of these... Um, seat of the pants writers you know I I just read what I did the day before or the week before or the three weeks before in my case sometimes and I just keep going so I don't plot I don't have much idea where it's all going to go but I just kind of tip away I um I suppose when I was um coming to writing you know whatever 10 12 years ago I, I suppose I kind of was a bit hung up of about things like, oh, you know, what am I going to write? What kind of stories am I going to write? And, you know, will I try this? And will I try this genre and that genre? And maybe, oh, you know, when you get your rejections, you think, oh, maybe I'm rubbish at writing women's fiction. Maybe I shouldn't be writing that at all. Maybe I'll try some fantasy or something. But I find that I just write what comes out, really, and what's in there. So, and I, I'm happy with that, you know. So I think you've got to, uh, got to remember, I think, that writing is a creative pursuit. Um, and we're all unique. So one person's approach to it might be different to another's. And what one person and the imagination is a wonderful thing. You know what some people can imagine, like I be in awe of it. But it wouldn't be what I could imagine, you know. So I just kind of happy with whatever comes out, really. So we were talking a little bit before I started recording, um, just as a bit of a heads up, but there was a thread in this story that I found personally fascinating. As someone who spent a few years writing and talking about seaweed. Um, Ireland has a thriving seaweed culture and industry, something people may not know. Irish people are well versed in the health benefits of different seaweeds, not only as a whole food, but in various applications like bath soaps and skin products, etc. So I wanted to ask you, tell me, why was this something that, that you wanted to explore in the book? Was it a product of the setting or, or something else? Well, I'm just so delighted, Claudine, that you picked up on the seaweed because, you know, I've just... Um, I was afraid people would think, oh, well, that, that, that hippie stuff, like, what's she on about, you know? And I, I think I threw it every, into everything. I threw it into, like, um, you know, when you go to a nice hotel and you get those lovely products and you bring them home. Well, I had my guests, uh, they go on the seaweed tour, and I'm not giving such a, too much away. There's just little sort of little extras, but they, they all get the little sachet of seaweeds for the bath thing and a couple of them have the bath and this kind of stuff. And I was delighting in, in writing this and imagining like the smells and the, the whole act like and tramping around the shoreline. And of course, I did a degree in zoology and I would have done that. We would, would have been taken off. And I'm from the inner city, Claudine. So I think that that also, like we didn't have a blade grass where I grew up. So the whole thing about being in the outdoors and, you know, throwing around um, you know, those squares for the quadrant samples and things like that and counting what, and looking at species and, uh, you know, the distribution of species on the shoreline and all that kind of stuff. I loved that stuff when I was an undergraduate student and to be able to draw from that experience, you know, not 35 years later, <laughs> it's an absolute joy. And I have a very good friend in Ireland who has worked in biology for all of her life. And she, her Facebook posts about what she was finding on the shore in Cork 
and what she was doing with seaweed really inspired me. And I, if anyone reads acknowledgements in the back of the book, you'll you, you find I call her the queen of seaweed. And um, <laughs> I, she gave me she gave me plenty of help with that. I, I was a bit terrified, you know, because I wouldn't be an expert in seaweed or not an expert in much really. But I, um, I kind of had the fear that I wouldn't be able to write it properly. But I, I just enjoyed it so much that I think it came across, you know. Um, just lovely, but seaweed is hugely important, I think, for the future as a as a food source, and you know, in terms of the economy and jobs, I think it's um, it's definitely on the up. So I'm um, I'm pleased I highlighted it in in that sense, but um, also in the sense of the sheer enjoyment of and even things like of it, you know, being around around it and, and what you might do with it, but also the names of the species like Aspotham, Lodosum and Dulce and Dillisk and Carrageen and you know words like that I suppose because I am a writer I love words anyway but with all of those kinds of things start popping into my head and um, it just took me back I suppose yeah. I was saying to you before we started recording that I nearly fell off my chair when you mentioned a prominent Irish seaweed advocate in your book, someone called Franny Rattigan, because I had the very great fortune to work with Franny, um, who is a doctor and an author of a popular book called The Irish Seaweed Kitchen back in 2014 for my own seaweed book. I was just blown away by that. <laughs> so much so that I ran upstairs to try and dig out Franny's book. And I was just, you know, leafing through it again and reminding myself of Franny's work and I remember him telling me at one stage, just to go back to how important seaweed is in Ireland and how how um, ubiquitous it is in Ireland. You know, she'd say that, you know, they'd go down to the beach and just forage for their own dulse and then they'd keep bags of it around the house or even on the dashboard in the car and they'd just eat it like a snack. Back in 2014, we'd be like, we hope that this is going to be the case soon in Australia. We really want to make people aware of how wonderful seaweed is just you know for its health benefits and, mm. and you know as you said for the economy and also the environment absolutely and if you go back to like famine times in ireland people would have gone and harvested seaweed from the shore you know in times of the the great hunger as well yeah so i i feel there are seaweed has probably suffered from you know a bit of a bad bad press and that you know people think oh it's disgusting and slimy and all this and I probably would be guilty of that myself but as I'm a bit older and wiser now I'm sort of really you know I was very happy to to do a little bit of research around it again and um, and some of my own friends not just Francis but others they're involved in the seaweed industry and I'm so proud of them do you know this is really groundbreaking stuff like bringing this all back um, I think, you know, and like like a lot of things, I suppose we lose lose the way, like we think, you know, all of our new ways are our best, but some of the old ways, of course, are, are fantastic and we can learn an awful lot from our forebears, really, you know, yeah. we just take the time and, and the interest, yeah. There's a wonderful scene in the local pub in, in this book in which a poetry competition is judged, not only really just discovered land poetry and what it's all about, such a powerful medium, and the poem that Connor delivers in this scene is a wonderful example so it made me wonder if you write other poetry I do Claudine I do I um I have some published poems I'm quite proud to say uh not many but some and look I I'm not I wouldn't consider myself a poet in terms of like that's what I do like every day so don't like I poems have to kind of um grab me an idea from a poem that has to grab me before I am 
before I sit down and write it. I was on my way to Hobart a couple of weeks ago um, for, you know, a bit of the, the, the book thing. And um, I actually found myself writing a poem, but it's, it's, it's a bit haphazard. Well, everything is with me is a bit haphazard, to be honest, Claudine. But that, like I hadn't written a poem for, I'd say, maybe a year and a half or something, or, or maybe since I wrote that poem for the book. But yeah, I really enjoyed it, uh, writing that poem. I... I was a bit worried and I, I, I'm very, very grateful for the positive response to that poem. Um, I don't do slam poetry. I, I went to, um, myself and my daughter, we were very fortunate. We went to the Sydney Opera House for the finals of the semis and the, the finals of the slam poetry, the New South Wales final, I think, and the, the, the national final. And some very fine Tasmanian slam poets as well were there. It's a fabulous, it's not a discipline, I suppose, it's a passion. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. But I had to go and I felt that it was the right type of poetry for this particular scene in the pub you're talking about. So there's a lot of kind of motion behind it. But yes, I when I started writing Claudine in my early 40s, I joined a, a writing group. Era more out of accident by accident than anything else. I was wanting to for a creative writing course, and um, I uh, there wasn't one in Port Lincoln in South Australia where I moved to, and I rang the local writing group to find out if they knew of one. And because uh, I'd only looked at the, at the local TAFE, and they said, No, there's none, but why don't you join us? Um, so when I joined them, then it was the first kind of thing they were doing, they were doing all these many different writing activities activities you know having writing prompts and things at the, the meetings and poetry would have been the first thing they I suppose challenged me to write and I just went with everything in, in, in the old activity at all I just I took, uh, threw myself into it so that's when I started writing well, I mean, I would have written poetry, you know, that said, you know, angst-ridden poetry in my teens. I think we all, we all write. But apart from that, I'd never written poems through my entire life until, until then. I loved that poem, and I could hear it in my head. I could hear him, as you said, breathing around the words, and it was just so beautiful. It took my breath away. So thank you for that. It was just lovely. Thank you so much. I, I, that, I read that means an awful lot to me. What would you like? most for people to take away from this book that's a hard old question in itself i just want them to enjoy it i want them to i suppose like what i get from reading a good book that's escape far one into a world other than your own a bit of a laugh i'd like them to get a bit of a bit of a giggle at times hopefully i have a few lighter moments in the book there are heavy things but there are also lighter moments and i suppose the relatability, you know, we all get thrown curveballs in life and there's none of us, you know, we're all flawed characters and none of us perfect. Uh, but, you know, we do the best we can. There are many writers who listen to this podcast. So I wondered, given your experiences, if you've had any tips that you could offer aspiring writers um, working on their manuscripts or those who are trying to seek publication of their work? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, I would never have imagined that I would be the person sitting here in a study with a lovely desk and, you know, <laughs> and the WIP, what you call it, work in progress on my computer. I would never ever imagined a time when I, I would be the person answering that question. You know, I spent a long time asking that question or searching for, you know, I was listening to your own podcast earlier with, I think, Danielle, what I can't remember her name, you'd have to, you'd have to give it to you. You did a mashup podcast with her. 
Oh, Danny V, yes. Yes, Danny V. And you were talking in particular about that very thing, you know, when you're an aspiring writer, you are looking for tips and tricks from other more established authors, people that have been published and and looking for things about their journey. But one thing that really stands out to me is that, well, a lot of people seem to give rules as advice for writing rules around you know, word count and daily writing practice and all sorts of, you know, rules, as I say. I can only speak from my own personal journey and I wouldn't presume to know about anybody else's circumstances. But I have a family, I have a job, I have a, you know, my own kind of mental and physical health thing that I'm kind of going on. And I really have found I make up my own rules I'm accountable I I do have another two-book deal I'm very very grateful to my publisher Hachette and I'm terrified about having the next book in on time because I'm in the early stages of it but I'm also looking back and thinking I have a process it mightn't be the same as anybody else's process but there's a bit of a method to it and I work very hard when I do get my chances to sit down at my desk and I make myself sit down at my desk uh, when I can. And I, I love that. And I've described it like a tent. You know, you when you open the zip of a tent and you get in and you turn around and you zip it back up behind you and you're kind of in this cocoon. And that's how writing is for me when I'm tapping away the keyboard. And it's very obvious to my family that I'm writing. Must be a little different to when I'm emailing or something. It must be a different rhythm. But they said, Oh, you're writing, Mom. Or she said, Oh, she has some writing done today, Mom. And it's like, Oh, God, isn't that obvious? I'm only surfing the net the rest of the time. But it is about trusting yourself. And I think there's a balance between giving yourself a kick in the button, making yourself sit in the seat and the bungalow and all the rest of it, and being kind to yourself and, and getting your cuppa or light in your hand or whatever you need to get yourself into that kind of cocoon. Yeah, so I would say, number one, you know, do it, but do it in a kind way. Don't be bashing yourself over the head. If readers wanted to find out more about you and your books, where can they do that? I have a Facebook page. Esther Campion Author is my Facebook page. And I have an Instagram. I think I'm Esther underscore Campion on Instagram. I don't have a website or anything, but Hachette, of course, Hachette uh, Books Australia, they have lovely information about me and, and links to, to where you can buy the books and that kind of thing. But I'm at the stage now where if you Google me, I come up, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Or Books or something. Yeah, it's lovely. Esther, I loved a week to remember. A rich, heartwarming story with a bit of armchair travel thrown in. Nothing better in my opinion. Thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. I'm delighted for the opportunity, Claudine. Um, Thank you so much. And to anybody listening in, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.